So good evening everybody and welcome to the LSE and welcome to our research festival for 2019, um, New World Disorders. And the theme was chosen by popular vote of our staff, students and alumni um, around about summer last year and uh, I think it's just got increasingly apposite actually as, as, the, as the year has gone on. Um, my name is Julie Black, I'm Strategic Director of Innovation at the LSE and I'm also uh, Chair of the Research Festival Committee and Steering Group and huge thanks to the, the comms team um, who've done a fabulous job actually in putting on all of the events um, that you've got running through the week. Um, and I'm delighted to be hosting this event this evening as part of the festival because it's also part of a new initiative we're launching at the LSE on uh, for LSE innovation, which is really to think about how we can take our research and expand its impact through the medium of enterprises, ventures, businesses, startups. So in other words, we can do more than nag policymakers that they should really accept our ideas, um, but actually get people to mobilize them uh, and take them out in different kinds of ways. And what we're focusing on this evening is that topic of innovation, but also asking the, the question, the exam question I've set to the panel is, how can we make innovation beneficial for, for everyone? Um, one of the themes that we're um, playing with it this week is between optimism and pessimism. Um, and I went to a, a, an exhibition at the V&A, it's excellent exhibition actually, which was about you know, digital futures, etc. And at the end you had to fill in a survey saying, well, how did you feel about you know, the arrival of, in this case, the tech innovation future? Um, and it then ranked you as to whether you're an optimistic, pessimistic, you know, head in the sand, etc. Um, and it was quite, and then it brought up the, the survey responses. And it was pretty evenly split, actually, between those who felt that this was just going to happen to them. Um, and they, couldn't, they weren't really participating in this. Um, and were quite fearful, and those who felt that they had a little bit more control, they would be engaged, and actually this would be quite beneficial. So, delighted we've got a, a good range of speakers uh, this evening to, to address some of those questions. Um, so, first is Jeff Mulgan, who's Chief Executive of Nesta, which is the UK's Innovation Foundation, um, and it has a, runs a wide range of activities in investment, practical innovation, research, and um, indeed in, in regulation as well. And previously, Jeff's done a lot around the innovation space, actually. So he was director of the government strategy unit, chief advisor to Gordon Brown, and the first, tank, first director of the think tank, Demos, and has been a reporter on BBC TV and radio. And he's been a visiting professor here, um, also UCL, but we don't mention that, um, at Melbourne, and is currently a senior visiting scholar at Harvard. Um, and Jeff chairs the World Economic Forum Group looking at innovation and entrepreneurship in the fourth industrial revolution, so obviously highly pertinent, and has written a number of books, including most recently, Big Mind, How Collective Intelligence Can Change the World. Um, and then a colleague from the LSE, very delighted to, to welcome Juanita Gonzalez-Urube, who's an assistant professor here in our finance department. And her award-winning research focuses on entrepreneurship, private equity, innovation, and particularly on accelerators and really what makes a good accelerator and the role that accelerators uh, can play. Then next up is Kartik Varma. Kartik is uh, an LSE alum and is running an accelerator at the moment. He's running um, Barclays FinTech uh, Accelerator Techstars, which is a worldwide network helping entrepreneurs to succeed. And he's also an entrepreneur himself and a co-founder of Prop Tiger. Um, and I spent a fabulous morning uh, at Techstars this morning as participants, well, <coughs> listening in on their mental madness where all their potential founders had this incredible speed dating uh, with their different mentors as they, as they whiz around. 
And our final panellist is on her way from Heathrow. Okay? Uh, so uh, that's Emma Smith. I'll introduce her now, so I don't have to do it when she hopefully arrives. Uh, she's an alum, also an LSE alum, an alumna of our Generate program, which is a home for student entrepreneurship at the LSE. And uh, she is a co-founder and CEO of Eversend, which is a blockchain-based e-wallet for Africa and its diaspora, which facilitates money transfers both on and offline, and so far has facilitated over $5.5 million worth of transactions. Um, and before that, she worked on enterprising innovative solutions to complex development problems, and she's also in Forbes 30 Under 30 uh, for technology uh, leadership. So but she's on her way. So I'm, now I'm going to ask Jeff, however, to uh, start off the evening. Well, th obviously, the, the speakers will speak first about five or six minutes each, and then I'll start waving at them madly, um, and then I want to leave plenty of time for questions at the end. Okay, thank you. <clears throat> okay, well, good evening, and thanks, Julian. Thank you for resisting the lure of the gorgeous summer's evening out there. I'm going to attempt in my six minutes, one minute, to cover the 5,000-year history of innovation, a couple of minutes on the present, a minute on the future, and then I will end with the most exciting job advertisement I've ever seen, which came out about a week ago. So, uh, to start off then with the um, history of innovation. So, most of the last 5,000 years, innovation has essentially been either about warfare, better ways of killing people, or glory, uh, usually the glory of kings or states. So, a lot of that obviously wasn't very good for many people. If you were on the receiving end of a drone missile, not much fun, and uh, extraordinarily wasteful, perhaps not uh, the moon landing, but certainly pyramids. So, innovation has always been a bit ambiguous, and certainly not guaranteed that it was good. And that was even true when, after the 19th century, business became uh, the main driver of innovation, railways, pharmaceuticals, search engines, you name it. Much more aligned with human interests, but again, not always, as anyone who's ever used Facebook will be aware. So we're now in a really interesting period where innovation is beginning to both question itself, but also becoming much more diverse. Not just about so hardware, that's the crick center up by uh, St. Pancras or smartphones, but user-driven innovation, design-led innovation, public innovation, data-driven, frugal, service innovation, social innovation. So a much wider repertoire of ways of mobilizing brain power, ideas, capital to do uh, good in the world. And all of these have their own ambiguities, but in a way that's what makes this such an exciting moment in history. So in terms of how do you do innovation for good, I'm going to get start with a little plug for a book which comes out in about four weeks' time and will be free to download, where we've tried to bring together a lot of method on innovation, which in a nutshell is how do you take an idea from an understanding of opportunities and challenges, the challenges could be Ebola or dementia, the opportunities could be blockchain, AI, you name it, how do you generate ideas, how do you test them? How do you get a business case, implement, scale, and ultimately change systems? And to be an effective innovator, you have to navigate all the way through, as our other speakers will say. And what we've tried to do in this book called The Compendium of Innovation Methods is give a snapshot of where these different things are. So Juanita, I'm sure, will talk about accelerator programs, which are now fairly mature method. Uh, next week, we have an event Julia is speaking at on anticipatory regulation, innovations in regulation, challenge prizes, crowdfunding, experiments, impact investment, prototyping, public labs, and so on. 
So if you want a, a, a sort of easy answer to the exam <coughs> question, today in about 130 pages there is a kind of a free <coughs> toolkit there. Uh, for me, though, one of the most interesting things is one which isn't really on that list, but which is becoming, I think, increasingly important, which goes beyond the venture as the unit of innovation or the product or the service to think about how do you mobilize collective intelligence at scale. And that means the combination of machine intelligence, data, AI, computing, but also human intelligence at scale. We now have at Nestor a Center for Collective Intelligence Design working on what this means for labor markets, for fields like cancer care, which I published a blog two days ago, uh, and also in relation to development. And this is my shameless plug for my book, which Julia kindly mentioned. Uh, and in my last 30 seconds, though, I'm going to talk, share this, the best job advertisement of recent years, which comes from the United Nations, which is now beginning to implement ideas of collective intelligence at <coughs> scale around development. And they announced a few weeks ago the creation of 60 accelerator labs, which will be all over the world, 35 in sub-Saharan Africa, to try and use the full gamut of innovation methods to improve uh, uh, development, to meet the SDGs, access to water, child mortality, you name it. It's one of the most ambitious programs uh, in innovation, in trying to show that disruptive innovation can be a force for good, and not just a source of drones or predatory social media uh, platforms. And at the moment, this is the advert, they are recruiting and they are looking for fantastic people from all over the world to join these labs. And if by any chance any of you are looking for a job, if any of you by any chance are citizens of the 60 countries where they are being set up, at the very least, look at the website and at the very most apply and make this a phenomenal success. Thank you. Okay, so uh, my research is on mostly corporate innovation and entrepreneurship. And so what I thought that I could bring to this panel was kind of like the recent findings that we have in academia about how firms innovate. Okay? So what is innovation? So we care about innovation because it's a very important engine for economic growth. And when we think about corporations, we think of corporations innovating in at least two ways. So the first way in which they innovate is just by creating new products. But the second way in which they can innovate is just finding new ways to operate and manage their own firms. Now, most of the existing research in academia talks about the creation of new products. So what are the factors that affect how companies uh, create new products and focuses mostly on high technology firms? So to give you one example, for instance, in my own research, I find that companies that are backed by venture capital investors have potentially higher returns to patented innovation, and this is for a number of services that venture capital firms uh, play with these firms. Now, however, uh, not all innovations have to do with high technology products. Um, and in fact, what we've seen recently in academic research is that changes in how corporations manage their existing portfolio of products or their existing ideas can also have important consequences for economic growth. So let me give you a couple of examples. The first example are business accelerators, which, as, as mentioned, I work on this. And so what are business accelerators, for those of you who do not know, are institutions that typically provide mentoring, business training, and networks, among other services, to new founders, many of whom already have a business idea. Now, what recent work has shown is that 
by providing this entrepreneurship schooling or entrepreneurial schooling to these entrepreneurs, what business accelerators do is have an important impact on the growth and survival of these businesses. So what business accelerators are doing here are not necessarily helping companies create new products, but better manage the ideas that they already have, think bigger, have a different strategy of how to grow, connect them with the types of suppliers or clients that they need. That is very consistent with work in other areas also in academic research that show how improvement of managerial practices, so how to manage your employees better, how to uh, manage your inventories, can also dramatically increase firm value, even with a set of existing products, so that you not necessarily have to create a new product. Now, the second example are just, is just corporate social responsibility. So corporate social responsibility is defined as actions that appear to further some social good. And this is beyond the interest of the firm and that interest which is required by law. Now, what we find in the research is this very strong positive association between firms that have positive CSR and performance. Now, Trying to attach some causality to that association is a bit harder, but there's definitely this positive relation between firms doing something other than their main core business, but thinking about the environment and the social good and how that can be associated with increases in value as well. So if that's true, how can we foster creativity and innovation? So the typical policies that have been used in the past have to do with the creation of new products. So an example of that would be tax incentives for R&D investments by firms. Now, newer policies taking into account the findings that I just shown you are very different. Some of these policies are sponsoring business accelerators and training programs, as both being company Jeff. There's also efforts to change this sphere of failure culture. An example of that is the Startup Chile Accelerator, which attracted foreign entrepreneurs to come to Chile and try to show the population in Chile we had less experience in entrepreneurship, that entrepreneurship was something that you could do and it was okay to fail, this is just part of the process. Now finally, there are also efforts to decrease the downside risk of innovation. So the notion that if you fail, that could have an important impact on your income. So what the French government did was they created this unemployment program that increased dramatically the startup rates in the country by allowing entrepreneurs to claim unemployment benefits as they were trying out their new businesses. So in conclusion, Corporate innovation includes two important parts. There's been a lot of emphasis about the creation of new products, but there's also a lot of value that can be had by just changing the ways in which companies operate and manage their existing products. Now, recent policy efforts to support innovation have focused also on that by promoting value-enhancing managerial practices, changing the culture, and also alleviating the downside risk for innovation. Thank you very much. Uh, good evening, everybody. Thank you very much, Julia. Thank you to the comms events team for putting on a great event. Delighted to be back at the LSE. Thank you to Jeff, Juanita, and Emma as well. I'll try not to repeat what the two previous speakers have said, but this is probably the most important slide that you will see here today. It's not very original, uh, but I figured uh, copying and pasting is one of the biggest innovations that we've been able to create, at least in the computer age, and much of what you'll see in my coming 10 slides uses copy-paste very liberally, so just bear with me. Um, one of the first things I did was I copied and pasted what innovation definition might be. 
So I went to Wikipedia, another really great innovation, just so we could anchor ourselves to a definition, a working definition of innovation for the purpose of this discussion. In its modern <coughs> meaning, it's uh, a new idea, creative thoughts, new imaginations in form of device or method. And so I thought I'll just give you a pictorial representation of that. Coconuts are not normally what you think of when you think of innovation. But here's a coconut vendor in New Delhi. I was visiting my parents in Delhi over the holiday season. And this is what he sells his product as. Think about the supply chain. Think about why he or she is actually selling this product. Think about whether this person is able to earn a daily living. And what kind of living does this person actually have? Contrast that to this. This is an image I took this morning uh, when I took out a bottle or a drink of naked coconut water. And just think about how this has been repackaged. So go back to that definition from Wikipedia of new imaginations in form of device or method. So arguably, this is innovative. Uh, you, you're going from uh, a developing country where coconuts are grown or tropical areas where coconuts are grown uh, to a modern Western European supermarket where you're picking up something in what I hope is eco-friendly packaging. But think about the supply chain for this. Think about the number of jobs that are created for this. Uh, think about the carbon footprint of getting a b bottle of uh, coconut water into your uh, refrigerator at work or at home. Next up, uh, without repeating what Hunita mentioned about whether innovation always has something to do with technology or not, uh, this is an image of Professor Yunus, and I think, uh, Jeff, you had him on your slide as well. Uh, he is basically credited with creating the microfinance model that has provided a lot of great benefits to people in areas where people haven't had a livelihood. Uh, often, microfinance is associated with women, but this was very innovative in finance. This didn't have anything to do with stock markets, the high-frequency trading, or the blockchain. This was as basic as it gets. You know, you're putting a group of a peer group together, and there's lending happening, and there's some peer pressure just to be able to um, respect your credit and your liability as a debtor to whoever's giving you credit. So there are numerous examples like this, but this is a very powerful example. Uh, which addresses that question of whether innovation always has to do something with technology or not. Moving on, I thought I'll talk a little bit about innovation and social responsibility. I'm not that good a student. Julia was my professor in my second year of law school, but I basically took all the questions on the event page. So if some of these questions look familiar, it's because I'm following that uh, playbook. Um, here's another picture I took of a cobbler in New Delhi. Uh, I'm, I'm an amateur photographer, and just think about what life would be like in his shoes, no pun intended. But those are all his instruments on the right side. You can see all the shoe polish, all the uh, artisanal stuff he's using. You can see all the shoe brushes, etc. But just think about what happens in a world where you've got robots manufacturing shoes and repairing them. What does that do to this person's livelihood? How is he going to pay for his daughter's <coughs> wedding? Think about the reskilling that's needed when the world is just closer to a fully automated and robotic world compared to what it is today. I'll leave the slide at that. The next slide I have is around news that was reported towards the end of November when there were claims that a scientist in China had created the world's first genetically edited baby. Think about the scientific and ethical 
implications of that. We're a social science school, so this is the kind of stuff we often think about. Um, but whenever there's a massive path-breaking innovation, it comes with a lot of uh, responsibility around the science and ethics of what's being done. How about uh, one of the biggest uh, uh, issues for us today, climate change? Uh, Julia and I were talking about the Grantham Institute this morning when uh, we met, but there's a massive uh, problem that successive generations will have if we don't attend to um, you know, the damage that we're doing to the climate today. Why isn't there a Manhattan Project? I know we had a picture of moon landing uh, in, in Jeff's presentation. Or uh, you know, the Apollo uh, Project kind of seriousness around solving this big uh, issue that we're facing today. How about drug pricing? We've got bipartisan support in the United States because drug prices are very, very expensive. If that's the case for one of the richest economies in the world, how about sub-Saharan Africa or Bangladesh where people are dying because drugs just aren't affordable for them? So is innovation happening at a very cost-effective level where it's earning a return on capital and yet able to offer all the benefits <coughs> of innovation to people who can't afford it? How can we foster creativity and uh, innovation? Uh, this is one of the better books I've read. I'm not getting any royalties for plugging this book, uh, but it's something I read a few years ago. It's called Where Good Ideas Come From. And he's got seven different uh, ideas where he studied innovation going back a few hundred years. And this is just a good summary of that. I'll let you take a second to read that. Um, for, for our guests over here, both evolution and innovation thrive in collaborative networks where opportunities for serendipitous connections exist Great discoveries often evolve as slow hunches, maturing and connecting to other ideas over time. So I've tried to put in italics and bold some of the important things from his framework. Collaborative network, serendipity, slow hunches, so you need a lot of patience, connecting to other ideas over time. So work that the LSE Generate Institution is doing here, I think, fulfills a lot of these things in the framework, and hopefully we'll see a lot of world-changing companies coming out of the LSE with all the work that LJ and Julia are doing. Uh, and finally, what does an innovating world look like? I think it looks something like today. It looks very busy. It, it looks like a world that's taking advantage of all the computing power that we have available to us at the touch of a simple button on our phones, all the unlimited bandwidth that we have. I work for an organization where the graphical representation of our footprint in the world looks something like that. The green dots over there are all the locations where the organization I work for has accelerator programs or community programs. Initially, I used to think that that's actually a little footnote <coughs> for that little text over there, but that's actually uh, an area somewhere close to Antarctica where Techstars has also done a community program. So there's innovation happening virtually everywhere in the world, and as Julia said, <coughs> you know, we're the worldwide network that helps entrepreneurs succeed. Wherever you're trying to innovate, become a part of a network, create a platform, collaborate with people, and hopefully make the world a better place. So thank you very much for your attention. Hi, everyone. So that's a great introduction because we are a Techstars company. We just started this week. That's why I have a cold. We've been driven craziness. It's amazing. Um, so I am going to be here talking about how I graduated from LSE last year and I started asking myself this question of how can we make innovation work for everyone. Um, I was thinking we have these incredible technologies today like Internet of Things, robotics, 
predictive analytics, but these are often used for generating profit and power. Um, and I thought about, you know, how can we use this for all? So um, I came on as a co-founder at our company Eversend with my superstar team, um, and we've been working on this goal of trying to make innovation work for all. Um, so what we do is we use a frontier technology called the Stellar Blockchain. Do any of you know what that is? Nice. No one. Maybe one. Um, so the Stellar blockchain allows us to facilitate mobile, instant, uh, cheap, cross-border money transfers. And we're doing this specifically in <coughs> Africa. So we operate it about seven times cheaper than our competitors. Um, so far, we've transferred about $6 million. But transfers are just the gateway to a larger vision for us. We want to become Africa's first neo-bank. So how many of you know Monzo? Nice, way more. Um, so we're kind of becoming the Monzo for Africa. And this is really important because in Africa, only about 10% of the population has access to a bank account, um, which is kind of leading to adverse consequences of financial exclusion and insecurity. So I'm here to talk about what we've learned to make innovation work for everyone through our experience at Eversend. Um, the first is access. Um, at Eversend, we built these sexy wallets um, that are iOS and Android apps to manage money transfers as well as sending, um, receiving, managing money as well. Um, but the thing is, 65% of the African continent still doesn't have access to the Internet. So therefore, they can't use these sexy apps that we were so excited about. So that led us to create what are called USSD channels, which allows us to send money um, for offline delivery to mobile feature phones like you had in the 90s. Um, this way, consumers in more remote or disconnected areas can access our services through partnerships with people like M-Pesa, who most of you are at LSE, you probably know. Um, so how else can we make innovation work for everyone? Um, another thing we've learned is to challenge assumptions. So just this Monday, I met with an investor who said, you're working in Africa, that's not a very promising market. And we showed him this slide and said, actually, there's $70 billion of money transfers moving through here. So our goal is also to break and challenge these assumptions that investors, but ourselves as well, we all have built in. How else can innovation work for everyone? Um, through building a team that represents what this everyone really is. On the left is a photo I took last month when we were at the Paris FinTech Forum, which is one of the largest uh, events in the financial services industry. Um, I'm not sure how well you can see it, but this was a room of about 300 people, and I took this photo and was looking at it later, and I was wondering, why did it look so odd? And I can't find one woman or one colored person in the photo. Um, so to me, what this told me is we need to be better about building inclusive environments, because diversity is really the enabling force for innovation. And not only just race and gender, but also age, nationality, personality, whatever it is. Um, to make innovation work for all, we also must test, iterate, and repeat um, to figure out what kind of innovation is needed. So at Eversend, we work on talking to our customers, seeing what they want. Here you can see they wanted virtual debit cards because e-commerce is booming, booming in Africa. So now we're working on building that out through our platform. Finally, on this theme of democratizing innovation, it's really imperative to understand the customer. Um, at Eversend, we aim to reach the unbanked population, about 350 million people across Africa, who are refugees and women often. 
Um, and to do this, we pose the question, why aren't these people banked? Why are they excluded from financial services? Um, we wondered if maybe it was because of the remote locations, maybe it was because they lacked economic empowerment. But as we dove in and we challenged our own assumptions and began talking to these groups, we found out that it was actually a lack of access to official documents, like a passport or an identity, a driver's license, that they could go and set up a bank account with. So it wasn't what we assumed, but now that's kind of changing and helping us pivot so that our customer onboarding strategy has to do with um, not formal identity documents. Um, so yeah, in conclusion, basically um, from what I've been learning, these are the five things, improving access, challenging assumptions, building diverse teams, testing and iterating products, and understanding customers. Because I think when democratized, innovation can be a very powerful force for good. so much, everybody. I think we've had an incredibly rich um, and diverse panel there and look into innovation and look from the corporate, we've seen we've sort of been challenged about some of the disruptive forces that innovation can have, but also we've seen that actually it can be a massive force for social good and the UN initiative is just an incredible testimony to that and it would be fascinating to see how that takes off. So I'm now going to open it up for questions. So there is a, will be a roving mic, roving. Um, so if I could ask you to, to put up your hands and I'll take questions in blocks of about three or so and feed back to the panel. So if you just want to wave your hands and wait till it's so thank you so down two down there at the front that's nice and close we'll start with those thanks hi thank you um going back to one of the main questions of the talk which was how to make innovation good for all i thought it was useful to think about changing the narrative of the history of how innovation is driven and uh, Jeff spoke a bit about how war warfare has generated innovation, but I think it's also important to kind of recognize the, explicitly the role of the state in, in generating innovation. So, for example, there's this recent book by Mariana Matsukato, who's speaking about the innovative state and the entrepreneurial state and kind of saying, uh, all these innovation that allowed the iPhone to exist actually exists because of state support to enterprises. And what if we recognize these and the state was an investor from Apple and is this a solution to, for example, problems such as technological job distraction and universal basic income and all of these things that happen around innovation but are not mainstreamed in the narratives of people in the business sector and even mm -hmm. academia. Okay, thank you. Next question. Uh, I would like to make a, a question to the, uh, the professor with the black uh, jacket. Yeah, so because I forgot the name. Uh, I've been impressed about your presentation when you talk about uh, fear of um, failure, because I think that the main topics, because I went through a kind of experience uh, of a startup, and then uh, you can I say, you discount the fear that uh, it doesn't work, you put time, investment, and uh, so basically, then maybe it's going to be difficult for you to go back to a, a, a normal employee job. So I think that's something that has been impressed by your presentation, because uh, you should probably create an environment where people, they don't have this kind of fear of failure. Excellent. Do we have one more question coming in? Person at the front down here. So could we just get to the, just, if you just keep your hand in there. Thank you very much. Thank you. Um, this is to Emma. Um, heard a wonderful talk the other day from a doctor who was in charge during the 
Ebola in in um, Gambia during, or, I think it was Gambia during the Ebola thing. Hospitals no run, built with no running water by Western organizations, but left with no running water in the hospitals, and so forth. There's so much that needs to be done in basic life, death sorts of stuff. Your company giving people access to banking, who from the pictures that you showed, don't have running water. Okay, right. Open up to the open up to the panel. Jeff, do you want to kick off on? But I mean, I know some of the questions were directed to, to specific people, but do feel okay. free to roam. The role of government. So, as I said, for most of human history, the state has been the main driver of innovation and mainly for warfare, but also, I think, a surprising amount for slightly silly glory. Um, and then, since the 19th century, as you say, governments have invested hugely in economic innovation. And that's always been mainstream, that that will be a primary role of the state in Japan or Germany or the US. Weirdly, it was forgotten, often by economists, who sort of, uh, sort of believed this view that everything happened in the market. But that's the exception. And what Mariana Matsukato has done quite well is remind people of the norm, which was always state funding. I think it's wrong to say it was the state which did Apple. So I think the state was ever entrepreneurial, but it provided the fundamental technologies which commercial entrepreneurs then used, and they were much better at doing that than any state bureaucrat would do. So there's a subtlety in this issue about the role of the state which, which risks getting lost on both sides. On the one hand, a sort of extreme market position where the state has no role. On the other, a view that the state could create the iPhone, which it certainly didn't. I think there's then a, a really interesting question which relates to the other one, which is... Um, was the interaction of what governments do and innovation ecosystems. So in India, in the last five years, the government introduced a universal identifier system, the UID, probably the biggest, one of the biggest innovations of this decade, 1.2 billion people now with a biometric ID, which has then enabled a whole host of fintech innovations, new services, new public services, to grow up off the back of it. And often I think that's the right way to think of things. What's the the synergy of the state doing what only it can do with its powers and its laws and often its money, but uh, then unlocking creative entrepreneurial energy of people like Emma. Excellent. I'll answer the question of fear of failure. Um, so I think that fear of failure, you can think of it as, as having two parts. So the first part is the genuine possibility that the business will not go through, and as a consequence, the income of the entrepreneur will be potentially permanently affected in, in the worst-case scenario. So against that fear, or to try and mitigate those issues and how this, this fear of downside risk can affect the possibility that people become entrepreneurs, the French government had this very interesting program in which they basically allowed entrepreneurs to claim unemployment benefits while they were running their business. You can imagine that this can create some negative incentives, right? You may want to say that you're really running a business when you're not, so that you can claim the unemployment uh, benefits. And maybe that happened to some extent. But there was a lot of, you know, government to oversee to, to make sure that this wasn't happening. And I think that overall, the, the kind of like the conclusion of the program was that it positively affected entrepreneurship. Now, the second part of this fear of failure is kind of like a different thing. It's more... Yes, there's this possibility that the company will not go through, and this may or may not affect your permanent income, but socially speaking, people will look at you differently. And in countries such as Chile, which are very like, detached from other parts of the world, and in which kind of like the business persona 
was not, um, you know, such well, so well developed as in, say, the United States, there was this fear, there's real fear of failure. If you attempted to be an entrepreneur and you did not succeed, you would be basically the black sheep of the family. No one wanted to talk to you. No one wanted to talk about you. And so that's a completely different uh, type of issue. And so what the Chilean government did was to say, okay, so maybe what we need here is an intervention. And let's just bring as many entrepreneurs as we can from other parts of the world, because clearly in Chile there were not that many. Let them come here, spend six months, interact with the community, and show Chileans that this thing of becoming an entrepreneur, while risky, can have a lot of upside. And if you fail, that's just part of the game. And it's a learning experience, and as you fail, you'll become stronger, and there's a higher chance that the next firm will, you know, will be successful. And so the way that they were managed to do this with Startup Chile is that they really attracted this foreign entrepreneurs. Uh, it was 100 per cohort, and uh, every cohort was every, roughly every six months. And then they, um, they basically organized this, I think it was the Wednesday, Wednesday meetings or something like this, where they all went to the local pub, and uh, the foreign entrepreneurs started talking about their business, their failed experiences in the past, and the local community was invited. And what happened was that indeed, for those locations very close to where Startup Chile is located in Santiago, and in the industries in which Startup Chile uh, specializes, which is kind of like finance, education, there was an increase in the startup rates of Chileans. So Chileans did become kind of like encouraged, inspired, they overcame to some extent this fear of failure and started trying to become entrepreneurs. So that was kind of like the second part of this fear of failure. So, Karthik, you've got state support, you've got fear of failure, you've got problem selection, issue selection. Off you go. Thank you. Any one of those. No pressure. <laughs> um, you know, on, on, on state support, uh, just to add to what Jeff was saying, how many people over here use email? Right? That, that came out of the Defense Department in the U.S., um, how many people travel by air? You know, a lot of aviation technology came out of uh, stuff that was born during the Cold War, right? Uh, Boeing uh, was a very large military contractor as well. So there's a lot of very powerful uh, civilian use cases of technology that have come from things that the state had been involved in. Um, on, on the point of failure, I think it's worth also noting there are lots of cultural differences across countries. Uh, the U.S., uh, culturally, people are just very open to taking a lot of risk. There are other parts of the world, like in India, for instance, where I grew up, where I grew up um, getting a job with the government is considered very safe and stable, right? So uh, it's very similar in southern Europe as well. It's very similar in other parts of the world as well. Uh, so that's also a form of risk aversion. So people are, aren't even taking a job in the private sector. They're taking a job with the government and getting a sense of entitlement with a pension, etc. So some of it has to do with just your DNA, which you may be born with. Some of it has to do with the cultural context. And some of it, you know, there's a lot of people over here who are from overseas. Um, when you go back to your home countries, you'll take uh, fresh ideas back with you. Uh, and hopefully there'll be some cross-pollination of ideas and you'll become a little <coughs> bit more risk-friendly rather than being risk-averse. So it's worth thinking about why the U.S. is just a lot more risk-friendly. It's not because the state is giving them support over there, but because people wear failure as a badge of honor sometimes and they're just identifying ways that things won't work, but then they're getting closer to that one way 
when things will work. There's a lot of risk capital available for that as well. Increasingly, that's becoming more available in Europe and now for Africa as well. Emma here is doing a business which a few years ago wouldn't have been funded at all. I'll let her, let her talk about well. it. Exactly. <laughs> but <Yeah>. yes, <laughs> it's true. Yeah. Um, yeah, absolutely. I guess that takes me to your question in the front. Um, is anyone here doing the International Development and Humanitarian Emergencies Masters? One. Anyone else? So that's what I studied last year. Um, and I, we wrestled, you know, you're wrestling right now through a lot of these questions of what is the best way to do development. Um, so certainly these, you know, hospitals are breaking down or running water is scarce are, were certainly questions at the forefront of my mind when I was leaving my program and I wanted to solve those problems. Um, but I think development, I, I had a lot of like critical perspectives about development as a field and thought maybe I'll try a more creative route and try building my own solution with an amazing team. Um, because So yes, that was why I took the entrepreneurial route. And then once I got there, I, I thought, you know, we could tackle one or two of these individual problems, like running water, for example, or we could focus more holistically on economic empowerment and building resilience in communities. And I believe that can be done through creating financial stability. Um, there's a whole heap of problems that people face. Um, for example, actually I'll name four key things. Um, first is insurance. Um, if you're insured, then if something goes wrong, um, you're in a protected, you're in a protected space. Um, the second is savings. You can start to build a different kind of future for your children if you have those. Um, the third is remittances. In, in many African countries, um, remittances actually account for more than foreign aid. Um, so for us, doing money transfers, a lot of the money, that six million dollars, is from family members sending money back. For example, my co-founder is from Uganda. He sends money back to his village. He takes care of like 30 people there by sending money home. So um, <coughs> that's a big source of support for these communities. And then the fourth is microloans, which we offer through our platform, um, which enable people to start businesses and kind of build their own financial and um, general livelihood um, to be stronger than it currently is. So a really important question. I think in some ways with our company, we're tackling the root cause and hopefully building up to be able to help people achieve these um, development outcomes. Excellent. Um, any more questions? So, Flurry up at the back. So, you were so sitting at the back there, blue jacket, keep, your hand, keep waving your hands, and then I know you're there. And then just right opposite in the aisle, and then at the back in the white T-shirt, and then I'll come to you next time around. I know I did that side, and then I'll go back to that side. If I could just ask you to keep your questions quite short, then we can get some, some more in. That would be great. Thank you. Go. Um, well, uh, I appreciate the, that, um, innovation, that, you, that you guys have been considering innovation on its own and not necessarily with technology, but, with the, but my question actually relates to disruptive technologies on its own. And I wanted to ask uh, all of you four, uh, what would be the role or the purpose of disruptive technologies to improve the scalability of innovation for development purposes? Because <coughs> I've seen, well, uh, we have seen like uh, innovations in different contexts, whether it has been like the, the packaging of the coconut water to like the, to the, to the banking Monzo slash app like in Africa. But I wanted to see that with the conception of innovation being disruptive, ultimately is good, but I wanted to see whether if it would improve the scalability 
for development projects, either it can be for uh, interagency collaboration or for the role of the state for any kind of development whatsoever. I wanted to see what could be the role of it. Okay, great, thank you. So, disruptive technologies and scalability. Yes, yes, person in the, in the gray top. Thank you. Thanks. I'm Guy Ines. I work in uh, FinTech. Um, to me, innovation is really the synthesis of two things mainly. One is great ideas, and two is impeccable execution. And I think we've spoken a little bit about how to aid um, execution of entrepreneurs and how can they be better at that. But great ideas are extremely rare to come with, as sometimes I think the um, not-so-great pipeline to some of these accelerator um, programs shows. And so I wonder if sort of the panel has a view. And, and, and I guess idea generation is not something that we're taught in school either. So I never had a course on idea generation in school. Um, so I wonder if the panel has a view around what is really the role of the educational sector in helping to build the community of individuals that will be the creative innovators of tomorrow, which I think is going to be a fundamental piece in the age of automation when robots will take over all of the other tasks. <laughs> and I think people will be really in charge of innovation. And I don't, I don't know if Professor Julia Black, you also have a view on that. Thank you. Okay, I'm going to do a plug here for Generate, which is our student entrepreneurship program for building businesses with social purpose. Um, person in the white t-shirt, thank you. Hi, um, I guess this is just a role, uh, question for Kartik and probably Emma as well. Um, I guess the short kind of question is, what do you think is the role of private tech companies in solving public domain problems? So for example, I'm from Thailand, um, which is a developing country. You know, like mobile penetration is, is through the roof. It's almost higher or even higher than um, a lot of developed countries. And yet, you know, I, I just see that there are huge um, like we're the top four contributors to uh, plastic disposal, um, you know, in the oceans. I don't think that's going to be solved by an app anytime soon. Um, so it's yeah, like what, what and and you know, in in a similar context, a lot of uh, African countries also have staggering uh, mobile penetration. And yet you're seeing all of these kind of like very basic issues that should be solved and you know have the power to be solved by government. But when these developing countries don't really have that stable government. Um, you know, how, how, how can private companies start to solve those? Okay, excellent. Three very different but quite challenging questions. So I'm going to leave, ask the panel to take at least one of them. You know how to cancel all because they'd be an, an evening in their own right, quite rightly. Jeff, do you want to? Well, there's an old saying that to every complicated problem there's a simple solution and it's wrong. So I think anyone who thinks they have a sort of a solution to a complex problem is, is just naive. So the, the answer to things like plastics in the ocean has to be quite complex partnerships of business and governments and civil society. On the universities and education side, I think there's a really interesting trend happening around the world, which in a nutshell says the role of education is not just to give you existing knowledge, but to teach through getting students to work on unsolved problems, which could be in science or in society. And if you're interested, we've documented the universities around the world doing this. It's a very different mentality of education. I won't sort of probe the LSE position on it. <laughs> Just two other little points. One is I would really emphasize we're kind of excited on copying and pasting. If you want to learn how to paint, the best way is to copy other great painters first, and then you can develop your own style. And in innovation too, far and away your best likelihood of being useful is to adopt, to copy, to adapt, 
not to try and have the brilliant brainwave. That's what Mi- we did, if you didn't notice. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and microcredit, you know, we mentioned Mohammed Yunus. That's a very old idea. There were lots of microcredit organizations in the 19th century. He reinvented and readapted an old idea to create something really valuable. And then a final comment on risk. I saw a fantastic presentation by an LSE researcher who may be in this room a couple of weeks ago on how our attitudes to risk depend on the day of the week. Do any of you know this? And they're lowest on a Thursday. So essentially, if you're ever pitching to an investor, make sure it's on a Monday, not a Thursday, because it will dramatically change your chances of success. LSE Research, just published. Let me tackle the one about the role of academia, since you know, I'm an academic. I think I have two views on that. So the first one is that universities that are strong in STEM areas, um, I think they have a, a better tradition than other types of universities in trying to incentivize the creation of new ideas. In particular, for instance, the role of technology licensing offices, I think has been traditionally important, but can be improved so much more. And this goes to my second point, which is that as I was studying, I don't know what's your, your experience, but if there was anyone who was even remotely brighter than the average, most of the academics would push this person to be an academic rather than someone focusing on, say, being a business person or trying to solve problems outside of academia. Mm-hmm. And I think, and I, I think that academics also have a, a, lot, of, a lot of changes uh, to do with respect to that area. I think we should work harder on incentivizing, uh, you know, good thinkers, people that are, you know, are very outspoken and very ambitious to not only pursue a PhD, not everyone has to do a PhD, but rather, you know, pursue these other areas of really trying to solve problems that could be more applicable um, to real life. So I think that's also important. Thank you. I'll add to what Juanita said. The role of the education uh, sector and educational institutions is to give you a lens to look at the world and to inform you of frameworks that may come in handy through your life's journey, uh, and also to teach you how to think. Most of us, whether we're sitting here or where you are, have probably forgotten what the textbook we read 20 years ago said, and chances are anything you're reading right now may be out of date one year from now, two years from now, three years from now. But if you remember how to think, and if you're taught well how to use frameworks, I think then the educational institution is doing its job really nicely because the world is going to be constantly in a you know, state of flux and you need to be able to adapt. And if the educational institution you're at is teaching you how to adapt, then I think it's doing its job. So that, I think, is the role of the educational institution. There was another question the gentleman in the white T-shirt asked about the role of private companies in development. So you know, private companies, just by their very uh, organization, are for-profit entities. They may have responsibilities. One of the things, one of the slides that Juanita had was on CSR, corporate social responsibility. There are certain governments now where a minimum threshold of your profits or your revenues has to be invested into socially responsible projects. Now, a lot of people abuse that as well just to get some tax benefits so they end up becoming vanity projects, but that's one way corporates are using their profit pools for development purposes. The other thing is that there's a massive move towards ESG kind of activities, environmental, you'll, you'll correct what the S stands for, social and governance, right? Sorry. Uh, it's been a long day already. Uh, so there's a lot of companies that are focusing on getting their ESG rating improved, 
And one way of doing that is focusing on things like what's their carbon footprint, what are they doing for the communities, etc. But if you're expecting a large FTSE 100 company or a large you know, S&P 500 company to spend all its profit pool on reducing you know, malaria incidents in India or sub-Saharan Africa or improving the condition of um, water that people are drinking in many geographies where water is just not drinkable, that's not going to happen Right? That's not their reason for their existence as well. They've got shareholders who are in there for a return. Now, many shareholders may use the return they're making through their investments, and once they become fairly wealthy, start focusing on philanthropic projects for that. So that's another way of answering, or another way of looking at how corporates can focus on development. I may be the CEO of a company who took a company public, just like Microsoft and Bill Gates, and Bill Gates has made it his and his wife's mission to focus on a lot of developmental problems. He's not associated with Microsoft in a day-to-day capacity anymore, but his entire wealth now is being used for everything from malaria to polio to AIDS to education, etc. Yeah, I think I'll jump on um, both of those questions you answered as well on education and then also on... um, on private sector and public sector and development. Um, just on the education front, I, I love that Jeff mentioned copy-paste because if you saw our app, we look so much like Monzo or Revolut, if you know them. Um, and essentially what we're doing is we're taking a great idea that we've seen in Europe and bringing it to a geography where these companies aren't at all trying to go. So, um, so that's a great formula for innovation. I think it's a great question of how to actually educate people to be more innovative but I have two other ideas. One, to create innovation that I'll just throw out there for all of you entrepreneurs. One is eliminating. I think eliminating the middleman or eliminating something that's broken with the process is a great recipe for innovation. And then the second is combining disciplines, like combining healthcare with, I don't know, the, I can't even think of something, something data computer science, science data science. And combining random fields or like things that are unassuming um, often leads to innovation as well. So copy-paste, eliminate, and multidisciplinary work, I think, is a good formula. Um, but I agree, we should definitely have more frameworks that we discover through our education. Um, and then, yeah, on the, the question on private sector and public sector, um, Maybe I'm biased because I work in the private sector, but I think I see the private sector really leading the charge. Partly, like as Kartik mentioned, in CSR and ESG, like um, bigger corporations who are pushing innovation, um, or pushing, sorry, social good through their work, um, but a lot through smaller companies who are like driving governments to, um, to make changes that are better for people. So an example of this is we're operating in Africa. It's very difficult to get licenses to operate as like a, a banking platform. Um, so governments have started piloting what are called sandboxes, like little regulatory environments where we can experiment in. And they're letting a lot of younger fintech companies operate in this space. So what I see is like the the innovative companies are pushing governments to change. Um, we saw that also like in San Francisco. We saw governments totally changing their policies around Airbnb when they moved in. So I think private sector tends to push public sector to change, and I would love to see that happen more in the direction of social good. I think it will happen. Millennials are supposed to be more than any other generation interested in social impact. So I think that that will come about, but it's a matter of time probably. And we haven't actually mentioned in this either the social entrepreneurship movement. 
which is actually quite an important and growing space uh, in terms of filling this gap. I know I've got a flurry of questions, but I also know I've got people waving at me the back because we, we are actually out of time and there is another event coming in here. Um, but we just had, I think, an incredibly rich uh, discussion this evening. And thank you so much for taking part and thank you for your questions. And thank you absolutely to my, the panel this evening. Thank you.